0: 62, uh, Psalms 62 and 63 this morning. So if you want to turn there um, uh, to the chief musician, to Jaduthin, a Psalm of David. Um, But I find this, I found this to be just a beautiful pattern of how to walk in this life that God has called us to, this beautiful pattern of how to walk in this life that God has called us Shampoo, right? And it says, lather, rinse, repeat lather rinse repeat right and i always look at that in my in because i'm critical of everything that somebody sends me i'm like you're just trying to get me to use more shampoo you want me to do it twice so i gotta buy more what's up with that but lather rinse repeat there are things that we need to do lives and i feel like this psalm just kind of lays out this path for us that i found to be truly beautiful so psalm 62 uh starting here in verse one and Uh, I'll be uh, reading a little and then uh, sharing and reading and sharing like that. So, Psalm 62. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And I think David is explaining here how he would like. I think there's evidence that... This is kind of a prelude to where he gets, right? But he's, he's talking about how he would like things to work with him. It's almost as if he's trying to convince us and himself, his own soul. He says, truly, my soul silently waits for God. This is the way that I want it to be. This is the way that I want to live. I believe these things about God. He will be these things and do these things for me. As I silently wait for him, from him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. But then his mind is quickly to grasp something, some truth from God. And then all of a sudden, you're like, uh, what, was, what was it that gave me such solace and comfort a few minutes ago? What was it that I, that I understood to be true of God and now life has washed it away. The torrent of life is just, and so we lose things. And and so he says, how long, verse 3, how long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they, about that. Here, David describes what he's up against, what wears him down, what would cause him to be greatly moved, right? He said, I shall not be greatly moved, but these are the things that are aggravating me. These are the things that would greatly move me, getting attacked. He describes the demise of these attackers as a leaning wall, as a tottering fence. Have you ever seen something like that that's just like, leaning, and you're like, how does this thing stand up? And you go by it day after day after day, and it's still there, it's still there, and then it's not. Then it falls. And God describes, the Bible often speaks of the suddenness of judgment, the suddenness of wrath that will come upon uh, people that have not come to Jesus there's no reason for anyone to be surprised, even though you see that wall leaning every day and you wonder, how is it still there? It's crooked. It shouldn't be there. It's tottering. It should fall down, but it's still there. And then suddenly, it's not. They're scheming. Their actions are part of a plan to achieve something else, and they hide their true intentions. They delight in lies, and what comes out of their mouth is not consistent with who they are, what do you think about that? Would you like to surround yourself with people like that? Who aren't consistent, that what comes out of their mouth is different than what they're thinking in their hearts? Are you ever like that? I am. And let's be honest, right? Sometimes we're a tottering wall. Tottering fence, a leaning wall. What's the purpose of a wall and the fence? So it's either to keep stuff out or to protect stuff that's inside. And if we're if we're that, if we have that inconsistency in our lives between what we say and what we do, we can't protect anything. In fact, we're probably going to fall on and crush the things that we should be protecting in our lives when we have that inconsistency in our lives. God wants us to be straight, not like these people that David is saying, this is, this is killing me the way that others are. We can look at others and say it's killing me the way they are, but we really need to look at ourselves. Because we've got no control of the way they are. I've I've said it before. I'll say it, uh, I think, until the day I die, unless God says stop saying that. Um, Now I forget what I was going to say. So (laughs) maybe that's his way of telling me. (laughs) Oh, boy. What a drag it is, getting old. He said, zip it, Skippy. Ah, yeah, that's great. Okay, so when we are like that, we're unable to accomplish what we were designed for. When we are like that leaning wall, when we're like that tottering fence, God's given us all, Things to do. He's given us, he's he's calling us people to be. And we don't accomplish what he has for us when we're like that, when there's that inconsistency about who we are. We're unable to be what we're designed for. So, verse five, my soul, so this is where it it changes, right? So, if we kind of compare. 1 and 2 to 5, 6, and 7, there are similarities. saying some of the same stuff. One of them is almost word for word. He's saying some of the same stuff. He wants to remind us. He says, my soul waits silently for God alone. First he said, truly my soul silently waits. Now he says, my soul, wait. Now he commands his soul to do something specific. He's not allowing a, a passive manner of his soul doing whatever it wants. He's not telling it he's not saying I really want it to be this way. He's saying listen soul, do what you're told. <laughs> Wait silently. Alone is a new word there. First he said truly my soul waits for God, silently waits for God. Now he says, nothing else, just God. For my expectation, my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. So he repeats this refrain, but it's a little different. Again, he's commanding his soul. He's talking directly to that eternal part of him, saying, this is how it's going to be. Not only are we waiting for God, but he is the only one we're waiting for. Nothing else. No plan B. No, if this doesn't work out, then God, or if God doesn't work out, then this. There's no plan B. My soul, wait silently for God alone. Verse 6, almost a direct repeat of verse 2. But now, he says, not only will he not be greatly moved, he will not be moved. Not just greatly moved, Not even a little bit moved. My soul waits silently for God alone. My expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Not a little, not a lot. This to me is a difference of being associated with God and being in God. And this is what I mean, the difference here. If I'm associating myself with the things of God, I can still be moved. If God is beside on, it's not impacting him, but it is impacting me. If he is my tower, if he is my refuge, and I am in him, then whatever else is going on around would have to shake him. And that ain't going to happen. He will not be shaken. The way that we are not greatly moved or moved at all is to be in him, to be in the refuge, to be in the salvation, to be in the strong tower, not just about it, not just around it, not just thinking about it, but to be in it, to put ourselves squarely in the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 7. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. And that's where we are to be positionally. In God. When you start shaking, things are getting crazy out here. Where do you go? In God. Remind yourself to go back to where you're supposed to be. Not just thinking about him, but in him. And in Christ, this is where we are if we have faith in Jesus. That's what's been said that is true about us. You are in Christ, and he won't be moved. He won't be moved. Not greatly and not a little. So when we're armed with conviction like this as to where we reside, where we abide, what happens? Verse 8, we start telling others. We get this pattern, right? First we tell ourselves we're we're thinking about God. We're we're learning about him. We're trusting him. And we go, right? This is not a, um, a, a time progression because we step in and out of these things. But this is a good thing to remind ourselves, right? You learn something. You get put off your game. You get conviction about it. And then you start telling others because now you're in God. Instead of wandering and wondering about all the storms around you, now you're in him and you're in that position of strength and you start to tell others about him. And what do you say to him? Trust in him at all times. Trust in him at all times. You people, (laughs) you people. Me and you, people, trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. We keep a lot inside. We'll talk more about pouring out our hearts later, but we keep a lot inside. This is pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Think about that. We share that conviction. We begin to speak with the voice of the Good Shepherd. John 10, I talked about it last time. I'm going to talk about it a little bit more today. He said, I'm the Good Shepherd, and my sheep will listen to my voice. They won't follow another voice. So we become, we begin speaking like the Good Shepherd. When we have this conviction, when we're in God, when we say this is our position, this is where I am, we begin to speak like him and say the things. We begin to lay our life down. For the sheep. Remember, the hired hand cares nothing for the sheep. What does the hired hand care about? Himself. What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? What do we care about most of the time? Ourselves. I care about myself most of the time. Unless I stop myself from caring about myself, I care about myself. Are you like me? (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said in John 10, he said, the ability to lay down his life was of his own accord. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it back up. We have to exercise our accord of laying down our lives, of being a good shepherd like him. And it was by the authority given by the command of God Our ability to lay down our lives, our ability to be like Jesus, authority to do that is given us by the command of God. Not in the exact same way. We can't overcome anybody's sin, a multitude of sin, though. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Servants, what does your care for the sheep consist of? I realized recently that much of mine came from a need to prove something to God, to prove to God that I really was following him. I really am trying, God. See, I'm serving this person. I'm serving that person. I'm trying to be a good shepherd. Don't you see, God? And where did it, where did that come from? Well, God, if you know that I'm doing that, then you'll... You'll be faithful to respond in kind, God, to do what I want. That's great. That's very helpful. So it was either to prove something to God, so he'd give me what I want, or to look good before men. Fantastic. Great motivation. But we're there, right? It happens to all of us. We get lost in these things. So one of these things I can't do, right? I can't control God. It's impossible. I can't change his view of me because he's already clothed me in his son. So I can't look any better, right? So now I'm going to go get some ice cream to God. I can't prove to him that I am now doing what you want. Therefore, give me this or give me that and I can't disappoint him because he already knows what's going to happen. And he loves me. So that's fruitless. I don't want to serve. So when I know the truth, then I don't want to serve in that way. Now, to look good before you, to look good before people, right? What is that? A snare. That's going to hold me. That's going to trap me. That's going to keep me from... So neither of those things work. So I'm, I'm free of the weight of those things. You are free of the weight of trying to prove to God that you actually love Him and that you cherish His salvation. And you have to prove something to Him. And you are free from having to do anything for men so now we're free to serve him we're free to be like the good shepherd and we're in him working from that position of strength because that's where he's put us if you come to church looking only to receive or to put your time in you're not following jesus you're following the hired hand and you're going to run when you're put in jeopardy or there's no perceived reward for you. A lot of times we come to church because, well, God will be upset with me if I don't come to church. He's not upset with you. He loves you. He cares deeply for you. He wants to give to you when you come and he wants you to understand the value of pouring your life out for others the blessing that exists in us being servants, the blessing that exists in us being good shepherds. If you think you have nothing to give, ever been there? I got nothing to give. Well, we sang about it earlier, right? I have nothing. I have nothing without the one that has everything. 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 I am nothing, but I have everything. So if you come and you're like, I have nothing. I'm just, I'm sitting here, and when it's over, I'm gone. Because who would want anything from me? What have I got to give? So you're denying what the Father has already given you, what Jesus has won for you, what the Spirit fills you for. In essence, you're saying, no thanks, send it back. Satan's tricking you, saying you don't have it. It's just little old me and I've not been good enough to have received anything. Well, you never were good enough and you have it by the actions of the good shepherd winning it for you and securing it for you that can't be taken away. You have so much to give. You have so much to give. From the riches of God You're stuck in unbelief. And he says, you must come to me as a child. So I want, you to, I want you to stop and picture this. Stop and picture this. Coming to him as a child who believes that God has chosen him. That God has spoken to him. That God lives in him. That God is for him and has given him great gifts. Freedom from sin, armor to put on, truth to demolish strongholds, things that would be used for the benefit of others. What does that child look like? What does that child act like? Is it time for you and I to drastically change and be like that child that is accepting the things that God is saying to us as the truth? I think about whatever, my seven or eight-year-old self. God is with me? A lot of things all the things that we could accomplish if we accepted what God says to us as truth, as a child. And we say these things are actually true, and they're more important than my bank balance, and they're more important than the things that I want from other people, and they're more important than anything that I could ever want. God is with me the awe that you would have accepting that as a child. What it would cause you to do, you see things come out of kids' mouths and you're like, whoa. Because they believe something that is bigger than them. And we believe it has so much to do with us. Is it time for us to drastically change by seeing things as a child? Verse nine, he goes on and he's continuing to kind of talk to talk to others here. First, he says again uh, in verse eight, he says, "Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely, men of low degree are a vapor." Oh yeah, well, the poor, you know, people of low degree, of course, they're a vapor. So we got the whole spectrum, right? Everybody, if they're weighed on scales, if you put them all together on a scale, they're all altogether lighter than a vapor. Just evaporates, just goes away. What do we care about everything that's going around us that would stop us from being what God has called us to? That's a vapor, right? That's not even a strong wind, right? If you're, if you're a runner, Dave's a runner, right? Would you rather start into the wind or finish into the wind? Tailwind the entire time, as would I. So all men, men of low degree, men of high esteem, everybody around us, there's no resistance in truth. There is no resistance to us from them. In, in the spiritual things. They're nothing. Stop thinking about them. Stop focusing on them in that way. Think about and focus on them as image bearers of God that he wants to return to him. But as resistance and as a force against you, they're nothing, lighter than a vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery, If riches increase, verse 10, do not set your heart on them. So oppression, robbery, and riches, these are hopes and tools of the world, right? We would get our nose bent out of shape by these terms. Satan wants you to go, that offends me. I'm not oppressive. I'm not a robber. It's not about riches. I just need a little more. I don't trust in them. He would want us to be offended by these terms. How about being a servant to all? How about becoming the least? How much do we rob God of the obedience that he deserves? Of the glory that's his alone? How much do we try to manipulate others to get what we want? In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Not in any of these other things. We struggle very much to hold on to these truths, and that brings us back to what we're listening to, back to his voice. So I'm going to double down on this from my S sermon and take it a little further as we get into Psalm 63, but let's finish Psalm 62 first. His voice, listen to this, verse 11 God has spoken once. Twice I have heard this that power belongs to God. Also to you God also to you O Lord belongs mercy for you render to each one according to his work. How great would it be if God only had to tell me once. God has spoken once. Okay, whatever you want, God. Then I heard it twice. And then I still totally messed it up, and I still didn't do it. How great would it be? What would we save ourselves from if he only had to tell us once? But he graciously tells us over and over and over, and he waits for us to respond. He doesn't force himself on us. He does not oppress us. He does not manipulate us. And this speaks to his glorious patience, his amazing restraint, not only power that belongs to him, but mercy that belongs to him as well. His authority to show that while he's telling us of near and far consequences, right? He doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't say, oh, nothing matters. Just do what you want. I love you. It's going to be okay. He says, you're going to reap what you sow. I do love you, but you are going to reap what you sow here physically. It is going to have an impact on you. It's going to have an impact on the ones that you love. It's going to, there's going to be consequences to what you do. But I love you, and I'm patient with you, and I'm not forcing you to get this, but I really want you to get it. I really, really do want you to get it. And I've provided you the freedom to work in a way that you're not comprehending to be in a way that you're not comprehending. He gives us an example to follow in our relationship with others. How quick are we to throw others over for their lack of doing right? How slow is he to do that with us? Power and mercy. You rendered each one according to his work. They belong to him. He's not relegated to one or the other. He's able to be both at the same time. God has said, listening to him and then to the people that are repeating what he has said, listening to God and then to the people that are repeating, what he has said, following his voice, going back to that over and over again as the cavalcade of other voices comes pouring in, as the flood comes pouring in of other things, to listen to, what does God say? Okay. Let me get strengthened in that. Let me hold on to that. David talks here about what God has said, and we know that he had in his life, at least these three, Samuel, Nathan, and the prophet Gad at least 3 like you know big time guys speaking into his life in fact psalm 63 has the title a psalm of david when he was in the wilderness of judah so let's turn to 1 samuel 22 and we've read this before but we'll go a little bit further than we've gone in the past 1 Samuel 22. <clears throat> so uh, David uh, has left Gath now at this point. Uh, he gets out of Gath because he's afraid for his life, and we got a, a whole psalm about that and a teaching about that. And in Psalm 1 20, uh, Samuel 22, verse 1, it says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them, lucky him. And there were about 400 men with him. Then, so he leaves Gath, he goes to this cave of Adullam, and his family comes to him and a whole bunch of other upset people come to him. And it says, he went from there to Mizpah of Moab. So he leaves Gath, but he doesn't stay in Judah. He goes to another country. He doesn't go to his own country. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So now we find in the next four chapters of First Samuel nine references to David in the wilderness, and I think this is where he composed Psalm sixty-three. Gad came to him and said, don't stay in what you consider to be the stronghold. You go back to Judah. You go back to the land that God promised Abraham. You go back to the place that I promised you you will be king over. David goes, and he's in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness, and we start here, Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh, God, Oh, sorry, now you turned to the wrong place, but it's up on the screen, so. Turn or follow, whichever. whichever. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh longs for you, in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I've looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Because you have been my help, therefore in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. David's on the run. His life is threatened by Saul. In this time, he saves the town of Keilah from the Philistines. Then the townspeople want to turn him into Saul. Saul kills Abimelech and the rest of the priests of Nob because of David's actions. His life is continually in danger. His family's in a foreign land. He has no control of what will happen to him. And we get this psalm. And this psalm says a lot of positive things about his trust in God and how God will satisfy him and his seeking after God. He says, when I remember you on my bed, I wonder what his bed consisted of while he was on the run in the wilderness. So he's laying there uncomfortably, I assume. This is way before he's king, and he's with 400 discontented men, and there are probably more discontented families. What's he sleeping on? And he says, I remember you. I'm laying here. I don't know what's going to happen, and I remember you. And my soul seeks after you. He was in the wilderness. Gad said, get out of the stronghold, go to Judah, go to the wilderness. He, he didn't use those words, but David went to the forest of Hiraeth, and we can tell from the chapters that come after that, he went to the wilderness. And he's there, and we often feel like, and I suggest we really are, in the wilderness. We often feel like we're in the wilderness. And our attitude and how we conduct ourselves is going to be determined by the voices we listen to, what captivates our eyes or holds our vision, and having the Lord's view as the filter our thoughts run through. Having his view determining what gets tossed and what gets held on to. We fixate on wrong thoughts often, and they're like a repeating loop in our mind. We've got to run those through the filter of God and say, No, I, I'm not holding on to this. I'm not keeping this. I'm not going to continue to let this invade my mind. It's out, it's been strained out by God. At you uh, specifically, <laughs> I am looking at you, but I don't intend you. When others have points in their sermons uh, that spell things out or that rhyme, or they all start with the same letter, my eyes roll into the back of my head, and I'm like, Oh, you and your gimmick. And I'm confessing that I'm confessing that I do that, I'm not saying it's right. Because when I do that, I take my mind off the one that ought to be exalted, and I miss what he has for me and the things that he's having another one of his servants share. So I need to throw that right. Voices, vision, and view. And I'm asking you, if you're like me, to repent and not get hung up on that. Take what God would have for you here. Voices, vision, and view have a major impact on how we maneuver through the wilderness. Uh, I'm not going to have you turn there, but you can write these down. Some things that God says about the wilderness. Exodus 5, verse 1. Exodus 5, verse 1. Let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Exodus 7.16, that they may serve me in the wilderness. Exodus 16.32, 16.32, he says, Collect the jar of manna and put it in the ark of the testimony, that the generations may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. Genesis sixteen seven. Genesis sixteen seven. God found Hagar after the Son of the Promise has been born. Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. And in verse thirteen we learn this name of God, Jehovah El Roy, the God who sees me. The God who sees me. The most lost you've ever been in the densest of forests, he sees you. And chances are he's brought you there to bring you to someplace better, to teach you and grow you and form you to a greater understanding of him. So what do we say, us good, smart humans, what do we say about the wilderness? Exodus 14.11 Exodus 14.11, were there no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? We have this view that this is the wrong place for us. We ought not to be here. If God is God and God cares about us, why am I in the wilderness? Take me back. Take me back to slavery. But we don't see it as slavery. Exodus 16.2, the whole congregation murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. When you're in the wilderness, how's your murmuring? What are you murmuring? Are you murmuring God's for me? Who can be against me? Are you murmuring God's given me great gifts? Are you murmuring complaint? Uh... I've been so, uh, as part of the Monday study the deepening, deepen your roots, um, we were reading the Jesus style. And uh, I read the first two chapters and lost my book. So each time I came, I hadn't done my homework, for those of you that are keeping score. Uh, but when we were done, I said, Ricky, you, can I borrow one of the books? I had already told him that I lost it. I wasn't hiding it. Uh and so I've been reading and I'm almost done with it now, but he he has he says in there, Aren't most of our prayers complaints to God about how he's running the show? Aren't most of our prayers complaints to God about how he's running things? Murmuring. What do we fill our eyes with? Right. Are there any advertisements out there that are telling you you can make do with what you have? Don't buy anything else. You have enough. You don't need this thing or that thing. You don't need anything. But wait, there's more. You just need these steak knives. Uh, They're telling you what you need and would be happy if you had. And our minds, you know, we let them be filled with visions of sugar plums or whatever else we think would make us happy. Any moment of any day, you can just start scrolling. This is, I'm I'm pretending I have a phone, for those of you that don't know what I'm doing. And image after image, some of them horrible, detrimental, some of them just of stuff, but they still... Capture our attention and make us go, "Ooh, that would be nice. That would be nice. That would be nice." Any moment of every day, we can start scrolling through images, clouding our vision. Second Peter one three tells us we have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Second Peter one three not through our circumstances changing, not through having more stuff. Our need is filled through our knowledge of him. Our parents' knowledge of him, not somebody else's knowledge of him, our knowledge of him. So we need to listen to him. We do need to listen to other people that are repeating his word, that are sharing his word, that are ministering his word, but it has to become Our knowledge. Nobody else's knowledge will suffice for you. Nobody else can fill your oil lamp. It has to be us. Filling our eyes with the things that are right. So what's our view? What's going on in our thought life? Are your thoughts dominated by fear or other desires, by different desires? So I'll give you an example from marriage because God has said this is This is the relationship that most emulates, the relationship that I would have with you. If you're constantly thinking about how great it would be if your spouse were different in this way or that way, how are you going to view them? How can you be, how can they be anything but a disappointment to you if you're constantly thinking how they should be different? What's your view of them going to be like? What's your love for them going to be like? What is it, how is it going to cloud love for them, your satisfaction with them, your tendency to be jealous of others or to covet what they appear to have? If that's the drumbeat, doom, 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 if only they were different, if only they were different, oh, it would be so great, oh, it would be so great, oh, it would be so great. Oh, it would be pretty great if you were different too if you'd stop thinking about what a mess they are what does god call you to what does he call you to in your thoughts and actions towards them so that's where you this is where you arrest your thought life and you go i am going to stop for god alone not for god and my spouse to be different I'm going to wait patiently for God alone. I told you we'd get back to this Psalm 62, 8. Pour out your heart before him. We need to be brutally honest with God about what we want. Sometimes that's so we can give him things that we are burdened for for other people, right? We desire someone to grow spiritually in some way, but it it destroys our peace at times because we can't just give it to him. And it affects our relationship with them because they feel the weight of our desire. And when we can stop and say, God, I really want this for this person, I really want them to grow, and I'm giving it to you, then we have a freedom to just be with them and to just love them and to see them as God sees them. So that's a good thing. That's a a way, a positive way that we are sometimes, right? Things that we want that aren't happening. Often, we need to pour our hearts out before God so we can see just how incredibly selfish we are. That we be honest with him. That Have you? (laughs) So, I've certainly done. I tell God exactly what I want, and as I'm saying it, I'm understanding the absurdity and the selfishness and the depravity that my thoughts are in. And I'm understanding how little I'm caring for others. And he lays me out very clearly, and I don't even get done. And I go, sorry, God. How do you want me to think about this? What's the right way for me to think here? As opposed to how I have been thinking, be brutally honest with God. <clears throat> so, last thing here, and then Rick's going to come up. We'll do a we'll do a last song together. The wilderness, right? We want to get out of the wilderness, like we're like. Yeah, you can go up now. <laughs> um, I'm in the wilderness we think we shouldn't be there and if we are there it means the absence of God's favor it means the absence of God He's we're just in the wilderness wandering around the, the word for wilderness is translated at times as a place to drive cattle a place to get some kind of stupid things to the place they need to be. We're kind of stupid sometimes, and we need to get to the place where we need to be. And God brings us to the wilderness to do that. And we say, no, get me out of here. Get me out of the wilderness. Get me out of here. And God's using it to form us. And our vision and the voices we listen to and the view that we have there is going to have a huge impact on how we deal with the wilderness. And we are there. What did John the Baptist say that he was? I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. You have an incredible testimony to give in the wilderness. Stop trying to get out. Know that you are in the stronghold of God. You are in his hands. You will not be shaken if you know where you are. Don't worry about the wilderness. Testify to what is true while you're there. Many of us are familiar with, so we're going to sing that together. Loving.